Hello, everybody. Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to remind you of our headline sponsor, Routine. If you didn't know, when you sleep, you lose between a pound and a pound and a half of water, expelling vapors and sweat. When you wake up in the morning, most of the time, you're not hydrated. If anything, you're dehydrated. And the first thing most people grab is that morning cup of coffee, which actually dehydrates dehydrates you even further. Routine has come up with their own proprietary product called Morning Routine. Morning Routine comes in single-serve packets, and each packet contains half an organic lemon, one tablespoon of apple cider vinegar, Himalayan sea salt, all six essential electrolytes, and most importantly, no sugar. All you do is tear, I just tear open one of those packets in the morning, dump it in around 20 ounces of water, shake it up, and I'm good to go. Routine also sells a variety of other products, including green superfoods, a vitamin, vitamin D supplement, apple cider vinegar gummies, elderberry gummies, uh, and you got to check them out. I love their products, uh, especially morning routine. Morning routine is, is one of those things that have become a staple to me. It's, it's the first thing I do when I get up in the morning. Uh, but I also use it as a hydration product. I'll use it if I just feel a little dehydrated in the afternoon or you know, after a, a hard workout when it's hot outside. Um, check them out. You can check out Routine's products at yourroutine.com. And if you use uh, code ShaneWhite30, that's Shane White with the just the letter or the number three zero. So ShaneWhite30 at checkout, you'll receive 30% off your first order. And the, the link to that will all be in the show notes. So you guys can click on that and uh, check out Routine. All right, everybody, today's episode is with one of the co-founders of Olipop, David Lester. Olipop is a better-for-you soda alternative. So it's it's basically, you know, taking the Coca-Cola, the Pepsi products that we all grew up loving and turning them into an healthy, a healthy alternative, excuse me, uh, with prebiotic and probiotic uh, components. And they come in a lot of the flavors that we all are used to seeing in Coke and Pepsi. It was great getting to chat with David, uh, obviously a very knowledgeable guy in the beverage space. And they're really trying to take over a category and and really crack into a category uh, that has been dominated by, obviously, like I said, a few key players. So without further ado, give it up for David Lester. Welcome to another episode of Simply Finance with Shane White. I am pumped today to have David Lester, one of the co-founders of Olipop on the podcast. David, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate you taking the time. Um, First of all, would you mind giving everyone just a little intro uh, to you and to the brand? Yeah, sure. Um, So Olipop is... uh, you know, a new kind of soda. It, um, you know, is all the things that you know and, and love about soda. It's delicious. It's refreshing, nostalgic, um, but with one fundamental difference in that we have changed the uh, nutritional panels. So instead of 40 grams of sugar, there is um, two to five grams of sugar and, and nine grams of dietary fiber. And, you know, my co-founder Ben has, you know, spent years now developing a, you know, a pretty sophisticated solution for digestive health, um, that includes prebiotics, botanicals, 
uh, plant fiber. And, you know, we, we take that super seriously and we have completed our own scientific studies with um, Baylor and Purdue Medical Colleges um, to make sure that, you know, what we're, what we're saying the product does is actually, you know, supporting people in that way. Um, and, you know, my background, Ben and I have been working together now for 10 years. This is our second venture together. Um, and, you know, prior to that, I had a corporate career working at um, Spirits Company called Diageo for 10 years, uh, which took me to various places around the world, uh, working in kind of brand marketing and, and innovation. Awesome. Yeah, I was gonna say, I, I was looking at you on LinkedIn. I'm like, you have quite the, the background in this space in general. Um, do you remember or could you maybe even go back? So, you know, one of the things before we started recording, I was saying is on this podcast, love going from zero to one, understanding kind of the, the beginning and how you guys came up with it. So I know your background, you've, you've, you both have been in like the prebiotic, um, better for you health space. Would you mind giving everyone maybe a little bit more of a background into just how you and Ben met. And then really, I'll get into another question, but curious, I'm just like where the idea came from for Olipop. Yeah, I mean, Ben is really patient zero for this. Um, super interesting guy, very entrepreneurial person. Um, he, uh, in his teenage years, was, was overweight. He was eating the standard American diet and kind of recognized that his life was not going down a path that was going to be very beneficial for him. So at that point, he um, decided to get a part-time job. He started buying better food for himself. He lost weight, but he also saw real um, cognitive benefits from Mm. changing his diet. His mental clarity improved Um, and he became really interested in the gut-brain connection um, so much so that he dropped out of college and started to teach himself microbiology. Um, so super autodidactic. Um, you know, he then went on an entrepreneurial journey, um, starting one of the first kombucha companies, selling um, high nutritional supplements online for a while. He was signed to an electronic music label for a period. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. And um, then when I met him, uh, he was working on this kind of, water kefir based soda product that he had you know just kind of worked to stabilize the water kefir and and really in very kind of simple terms um you know he was really passionate about taking the benefits of digestive health to a broader audience he grew up in the kind of santa cruz area and had seen how passionate people were about kombucha but also understood that for every one person that liked it, there were, there were 10 that didn't. Yeah. And just simply thought, you know, what is a big category? Well, soda's big. What if I made this taste like a soda? Then more people would drink it. Oh. Um, so, you know, I had decided at that point to quit my job at Diageo after 10 years. Um, and I, you know, when I told my boss, she said, look, if your mind's made up on that, you may want to speak to this guy. He's looking for a business partner. And that turned out to be Ben. And we met at a cafe in Palo Alto. He had, you know, a little bag of sodas that he had, you know, made in a soda stream and, and decanted into glass bottles and oh, wow. tried them. And yeah, they, they tasted amazing. And he told me like the sugar content and that he was using stevia. And I was pretty blown away. He managed to make them taste so good. Um, they tasted like a full calorie soda to me. Um, I didn't know anything about gut health at the time, but um, you know, I, I came away from that conversation thoroughly inspired and, um, uh, you know, got home to my wife and, 
um, you know, just recently married, about to have kids and um, saw this look of fear in her eyes. She said, you're going to do this thing with this guy, aren't you? And I said, yeah, I think I'm going to do it. <laughs> um, you know, took a year, no salary. Ben and I just kind of got that thing off the ground. And, um, you know, that's, that's kind of how we set out on our journey. Wow. No, that's wild. I did not know that. So what, what was the thought process? A lot of people listen to this, I think are in that world of either like getting started with something, have a, have a, at least like an, an itch to maybe go do something on their own for you. What was that conversation with your wife? Um, and then ultimately like from your perspective on leaving Diageo without uh, the next thing lined up, like what was your kind of thought process through that part of your journey? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, for context at the time, I was 31, I think, about 31. So, yeah, I think it's important, like, where you are at in your career. And, you know, I I really enjoyed my time at Diageo. I thought it was a great company. Um, but I was kind of getting frustrated with the bureaucracy of a large business. Sure. And I just didn't feel like I had meaning in what I was doing. Um, you know, I grew up in a, in a pretty working class area in, in the Northwest of England. And, um, you know, my mom was a school teacher my dad worked for the local council and I saw them having really material impact on people's lives. And, you know, it was fun. The job I had, I mean, I took me from London, Sydney to Sao Paulo, um, you know, to, to work in those different, uh, cities, but, um, you know, I, I just wanted to find some more meaning in what I was doing. And so I don't think I really knew what I wanted to do more than I knew what I didn't want to do. And, you know, it was probably a, you know, a, a large part of naivety in, in that, um, you know, looking back, I really had no idea what I was doing, um, you know, and um, yeah, I, I think you've got to need to do it in a way if you get, because, you know, particularly if you got a good corporate job, there's a lot of, benefits to that i mean it was a great yeah. place to work great structure candidly a lot of startups are not very good places to work um so um you know i think you've really got a need to do it and you know there's certainly times you know i was looking back where i was like give me my beanbag and you know um <laughs> cookies and you know whatever um ideation break room treats and stuff um but um you know you just kind of like push through and and yeah, it's, I'd say venture number one, which was three years, um, super stressful, um, not very fun at all. Um, we then had two years in between, which was kind of self-reflection, personal growth, um, reformulation, thinking through the idea. And then, you know, another, you know, whatever year or so, just kind of like dragging something into existence again. And yeah, it was only at that point, really, I'd say I could honestly say I started to enjoy the experience. Um, so, you know, it's, yeah, it's it's not a kind of decision to be taken lightly. Um, you're, you know, if it's your first venture, you're really not going to be able to understand what it's like. Um, and, you know, you just got to want to dive in and, and be ready to kind of loosen your screws and you know, learn some stuff and, you know, be, be open to that at whatever point in your life you're in. Yeah, no, that, make, that makes sense. You kind of just dove in and, and you figured it out. That, that makes a ton of sense. So when you can, you kind of hit on it, but the, the other venture you're talking about, is that OBO prebiotic soda? So is that like the, the pre Olipop venture you guys were working on together? Exactly. Yeah. It really was like a version 1.0, you know, we, 
we messed up the financing, we messed up, you know, th there was improvements to make on the concept. Um, I think it's very challenging to, you know, there's so much to learn being a founding a business, starting a business. And I'm, I'm really in awe of people that do it for the first time and make a success out of it because I, in my mind, there's almost just too much stuff to learn in one go. Like you can't absorb that much information. You're going to make mistakes. And then those mistakes start to compound over time. And then you find yourself in a real pickle. So, mm. um, you know, um, so yeah, I think uh, it's, it's no surprise that like venture two or three is often the one that kind of really, really clicks for people. Yeah, no, I mean, that makes sense a ton. Um, what was it like, you know, shutting down the first one, learning your lessons? Because I think it's, it's interesting to hear that, right? Especially for people listening. Um, you could have just gone back to corporate America, I guess, right? If you wanted to, like, you could have been like, okay, I tried, it didn't really work out, but you decided to like double down and go forward. Do you remember kind of your thought process through that? Yeah, I mean, I definitely considered it um, going back to corporate life. I mean, I was exhausted. I think the last eight months or so of that venture, I was probably pretty depressed that, you know, I had, it was quite a, quite a challenging point in life where we had two young kids as well, you know, bringing up. So, um, so yeah, it was definitely a strong consideration, but, um, you know, I think as I, there was a number of factors for me, um, you know, I kind of considered going back to that job and realized that I, I really couldn't get my paid to do it again. Um, <laughs> particularly as I got a bit of rest and, you know, sort of got my energy and back and things, um, you know, Ben and I were really passionate about the mission that we were going after. Like it felt good to be pursuing that. And so, you know, you, you kind of start to contextualize that this is just part of the journey. It's not the end of it. You know, it's like, this was, you know, turned out to be a kind of like necessary step, you know, in, in, in the process uh, to get to where we are now. And um, so, yeah. And then, you know, kind of proving to myself that I could do it. I, I think I felt like there was, um, you know, I'd done myself a disservice the first time around and I, I can do better than that. And so, you know, I was like, okay, let's go and prove, prove that you can. Yeah, no, it makes, that makes sense too. Um, so when you, you decide to go forward, you're going to like rebrand, bring this next venture to life. Um, you guys were tweaking the product behind the scenes. Do you remember then what was it like going zero to one with that venture? So like you, I'm sure like going through a rebrand and reformulating and bringing another product to market. What was it like kind of the second time coming to life with a product? Yeah, we, we essentially just started from scratch. Um, we start everything from the product and from the, the kind of human need, if you like. So, okay. yeah, it's one of the reasons I love working with Ben is because, I mean, this is a guy that wakes up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night wondering about what's the meaning of life, you know? So, okay, yeah. um, you know, he's a very driven person and thinks very deeply and purposely about how he is spending his time and what he's doing in life and, you know, and I really respect that. And so, um, you know, as we looked at it, we were like, okay, well, our goal is still the same. Like we need to make a fundamental dent in, you know, people's digestive health and, and nutrition. And what was interesting is a number of the connections that we had um, from our OB days, leading nutritionists, microbiologists, were really switching their focus from probiotics to prebiotics and fiber as a way of modulating for optimal digestive health. So, um, you know, people like Justin Sonnenberg out, out Stanford, um, studying hunter-gatherer tribes, 
Mm. You know, some of which still exist today in, in parts of Asia and Africa, consuming a diet that we typically would have consumed for hundreds of thousands of years. And, you know, studies were really interesting and they revealed kind of two major differences in the, in the diet. One, um, the quantity of fiber that hunter-gatherer consumes around 200 grams a day versus R15 on average in the West and uh, nutrient diversity a hunter-gatherer would consume about 1,400 different types of food in a year. We get 200 if we're lucky. And oh, yeah, wow. intuitively that makes sense. You know, we've got this heavily hybridized food system, um, you know, uh, consumer packaged goods that are made from, you know, primarily four ingredients with a bunch of flavoring, you know. So, um, so yeah, the that kind of started us off on that path. Ben actually went to Japan for a while to kind of think about things and study um, a little further. Um, you know, all the while I'm kind of looking at the market and seeing, you know, how we would wrap this thing and bring it to life and how we would sort of, you know, say we, we tested, we, we experienced some success first time around with the product. It wasn't like a total failure. The, the product itself was pretty successful in the market. Um, it was just kind of the infrastructure around it. So, um, so yeah, Ben then started formulating and I actually ended up running, I think like 20 consumer groups myself, just oh, throughout wow. California, just friendship groups, whatever we could scrap together through friends, friends and friends. Um, super insightful. Actually, those research groups led us to um, completely redesign our packaging a month or so before launch. Um, just because we felt like the, or we could see the, the original pack design that we had, that we'd raised our convert, you know, seed convertible note of, you know, wasn't working the way that we wanted it to. Um, and, you know, from there, it's just kind of like test and learn, you know, we go into 40 stores in Northern California and then Erewhon wants to pick us up. And so we start, you know, putting some volume through Erewhon and then Whole Foods takes notice in Northern California and, you know, just kind of things built from there. Got it. Well, hey, those are some good retailers to get some attention from early on. That's awesome. Um, yeah, no, that that's really cool. And I think it's it's interesting to to hear that you guys were still, I guess for lack of better words, you were patient and you were trying to come to market with like a true need. And for everyone listening, I think the one thing I probably skipped over was would you mind? So explain to everyone it's a it's a prebiotic, probiotic, low sugar. Um, it's, it's really a soda, right? I mean, do you guys sell it or I guess market it as a soda or what do you guys market it as to consumers? Yeah, we, we market it as a new kind of soda because, um, the, you know, people have a perception of soda right now, which is it's cheap and sugary and, um, you know, a cheap sugary fizzy drink. And so, you know, we're kind of redefining people's expectations of it. Say, look, it's, it's a lot of the things that you imagine, which is delicious, nostalgic, you know, refreshing, fun. Um, but it, instead of harming, harming your health, this is actually going to support it. And so that's a major shift, you know, and I think sort of one of the lessons from my Diageo days was around, you know, only breaking one rule, but break it really hard. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, keep everything else the same because consumer behavior change is hard, right? If you, throw something in front of people that's very unfamiliar to them, it is very difficult to get them to shift behavior. And there's some, you know, super disruptive innovation that have completely redefined a category or, you know, but often, um, you know, it's, it's quite a disruptive thing just to change one thing and keep everything else the same. And so as you can imagine for people, 
the idea that a soda can now support your digestive health, that's pretty disruptive, you know, idea. Yeah. Um, if you start changing other things as well, then they're like, hold on, this really is too wacky now. But we're like, everything else is the same. Don't worry about it. It comes in a can, it's cola flavor, you know, it tastes delicious, it's fizzy. Everything else is the same. The only thing you've got to get your head around is that this now supports your health. Um, and um, so, yeah, I think that's, you know, kind of key key aspect to, to the design of the, the concept. Yeah. No, it's been cool because as I was doing my own research, like obviously like this is a LaCroix, if everyone's, everyone's watching, um, you know, I feel like that space has become so crowded with so many brands that are trying to do, you know, for lack of better words, again, like a copycat of what a LaCroix is. When I, when I was realizing you guys are doing like actual like Coke, Flate like like soda pop flavors. I'm like, oh, that's a genius because that that really is like probably the biggest missing piece in my mind in that category is like a better for you uh, version of that, uh, which you guys are obviously hitting right on the head. Um, so that's exciting, and I, I've even seen some pictures too. I think you guys shared some on social where it's like you know Pepsi or Coke, and you guys are right below them in some sets in retail, which I thought is that's got to be great placement for you guys. It's like a, it's like an aha moment for consumers, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, typically we're we're ranged in the uh, kombucha section and the what we're now re- reframing as digestive health because that's what it's changing. Mm, yeah. to, you know? So as kombucha kind of, and, you know, to your earlier point um, around sparkling water as well, um, you know, soda is like a $40 billion category. Um, sparkling water is about 4 billion and kombucha is about 1 billion. So, um, you know, the opportunity is huge in soda and really, you know, we look at Olipop as kind of a Trojan horse style product. Um, you just, you know, switch out the kind of poison for the antidote, essentially. Yeah. But, you know, everything else stays the same. Um, you know, very nefarious category soda, but ubiquitous nonetheless. And, um, you know, 97% household penetration or something. So if you're looking for market opportunity, if you're looking for addressable market, Soda is one of the best categories to be in, um, you know, provided you can successfully execute against the idea of a soda replacement, which, you know, is a lot easier said than done. I don't think the idea of, you know, a better for you soda is necessarily that groundbreaking, but, you know, it's how you execute it. Are you able to formulate that? You know, Ben does all the formulation for our products, hundreds of experimentation, oh, wow. you know, hours of experimentation on each um formula that we launched so that that's critical because you know if the taste doesn't back up the the promise then you know we we wouldn't be where we are now sure no that makes sense and i love asking this question to founders um because i think it's really interesting kind of to build on like where you guys sit and who you're competing against in that massive category is why do you think you know the other big soda brands haven't tried to come out with something at least in the healthier better for you soda space as you see some of these other big time food and beverage brands starting to copycat um you know better for you products in their aisles for example yeah i think they have to a degree um you know you see them coming out with um you know stevia sweet and coke and you know other other products i mean having sat on both sides of the fence, you know, having worked for a, you know, large, you know, multi-billion dollar multinational company. Um, and Diageo is pretty good at innovation as well, actually. I think it's one of the, the better ones, but those businesses are not set up for innovation and they, they shouldn't be because, you know, if you kind of save a cent on the cost of a can of Coke, you know, you're a hero in that business, you know, it's, sure. it's yeah. and um, 
So you really need to be thinking about how you manage large organizational structure, um, how you deliver, you know, incremental gains that have, you know, a compounding effect over time. You know, startup mindset is completely different. It's around, you know, failing and, and learning from it, growth mindset, trying things, you know, less structured um, environment. So they're just fundamentally at odds. And I think, um, you know, it's just, it's an unrealistic expectation to, you know, for large businesses to be able to really disrupt markets and disrupt themselves, particularly, you know, a business like Coke, you know, Coca-Cola is such a big part of what they're, they do and their, their revenue, little different to Pepsi, but, um, you know, so it's, you know, anything you stick in that system is going to be tiny in comparison. Um, you know, even at Diageo, you know, the, the focus brands, you're looking at kind of Johnny Walker, Smirnoff, Guinness, and then everything else follows a distant second after that. Um, sure. I've worked on some big brands. Like I worked on Gordon's Gin, the biggest gym brand in the world. But, you know, you struggle to get focus within that portfolio just because it's not, you know, it's not shifting the dial in the same way that, you know, selling 1% more uh, Johnny Walker is going to do or something. So, you know, I think... Um, yeah, there's, there's a place for both in the market. You know, I don't think many of the people working in our business now would be very good at, in a billion dollar company, uh, myself included, you know? Um, so, um, yeah, it's just sort of different, different stages of the, of the life cycle. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. And I would have to agree from the stories I've heard that that makes a ton of sense. It's like moving a big ship around. Uh, it's a lot different those big organizations, um, for you guys. So when you came, came, to market with Olipop. Uh, the one consistent thing I've heard from other beverage founders on my podcast is the like upfront costs that it takes to bring a canned good to market. So it's been kind of an interesting theme that I didn't really know a lot about until I met some founders. What was that like for you guys? Like you're doing all this research in R and D and then to bring a canned good to market, it just seems like most brands, if you want to get into that space, you really have to either have a lot of bootstrap funding or really go raise capital pretty early. Was that something you guys dealt with as well? Just trying to scale that part of the business and, you know, buy inventory. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't want to gaslight people in that you can kind of bootstrap your way to, you know, success in, in beverage. It's, you know, we, you know, Ben and I, you know, didn't really have any contacts, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm from the UK originally. Um, you know, I didn't have much of a network over here. Um, you know, Ben obviously dropped out of college, you know, dropped out of college. So didn't have the MBA contacts or anything like that. Um, we don't have family wealth or anything. So, you know, if you're in that position, um, it, it does take a bit of cash. And we started with a, you know, half a million, million dollar convertible note, um, you know, which was raised off. You have to get through a bit of the, you know, R&D and stuff yourselves. Sure. So we had to kind of, invest in ingredients and um you know we uh had to invest in packaging and stuff so that we just kind of like dipped into our own pockets um you know pretty <clears throat> like nerve wracking experience particularly when it think could just like zero out on you within months um but you know i think you've got to seeing is believing and you've got to be able to present something to investors that they can kind of get their heads around a little bit and then I would say raise some cash. And if you can raise even more than that, because, um, you know, uh, yeah, by the time you buy all your inventory, you screw up a production run, it's, you know, you, you, you do need some cash and, you know, it, it depends on the business. Like some just 
you know, aren't really suited for venture capital style funding. It may be something that, yeah, you, you know, do buy glass bottles and just, you know, make them yourself in your yeah. kitchen and deliver them to five local stores or something. Um, but, you know, we felt strongly enough that there was a big enough opportunity that we didn't need to go through that level of testing. We just wanted to kind of swing for the fence a little quicker. So, so we went straight to the market to get some cash. And that makes sense. Totally makes sense. I've, I feel like it's, it's almost inevitable. What, what was like a big learning lesson for you guys, especially hearing that you guys didn't have like experience in raising capital or have maybe this like wild network where it was an easy tap into what was that process like for you guys and any learning lessons that you could give to the audience? I'm sure people would love to hear. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard, very hard. Um, you know, we were on our second venture as well. So that helps because, you know, investors are naturally skeptical of entrepreneurs because, <laughs> you know, most times you don't know what you're getting into and you start to get in. Investors have seen lots of these journeys, right? Most of the investments they make don't work out, particularly if they're a seed stage investor. So, you know, they look at you, you're a, you know, 31 year old, 27 year old, 35 year old, whatever. And, um, or even, you know, 45 year old coming out of the corporate environment and they're like you, you don't know what you're about to get into ah. and you know um you can you handle it you know and and are you going to want to push through when things are, are really challenging so um you know seeing that we had got whacked around the head for three years and we're back again investors were like okay clearly these guys do have some appetite for this thing they're not going to just tap out through you know they're they're not naive anymore there's some there's some battle scars there so you know, that, that is certainly useful. I think that first check you raise is, is the hardest you will ever raise. And um, there's nothing rational about it. So, you know, I was chatting to an entrepreneur earlier today and, and giving him some advice around this as well. But, you know, I mean, this is just sort of my opinion. So, and it, and it could be wrong, um, like all of my opinions, but um, I'll say it nonetheless. Um, the, you know, the sort of textbook way of raising seed financing of like, put your business plan together and like your business plan is pretty BS at that point, because, sure. you know, you could put together a five-year plan that shows you're going to get to like a hundred million dollars, but you haven't even made it bottle of the stuff yet. So, um, you know, I mean, you can theoretically put in there whatever number you want and, and any investor who's savvy enough will realize that it's just entirely made up numbers. And, and, you know, so all you're demonstrating is like, how good are you at, you know, putting together a fictional P&L, um, yeah. which only has so much value when the rubber hits the road. Um, you know, so I think often um, you need to do some honest kind of uh, introspection around like, does this product need to exist? And does it serve humanity in some way? Like, does it serve a purpose? Um yeah, I think it's dangerous just to kind of be chasing trends. Um, but yeah, it can work out if you're in a market that, you know, there's sort of plenty of competitors coming to our space that have been been quite successful. Um, yeah, if you, if you find a kind of concept that's, that's working properly. But I think, you know, the entrepreneurs I really admire are the ones that look at like what, you know, human problems need to be solved. And they just feel yeah. very passionate about that. And so it helps you on the pivot as well, because you might find that, you know, the problem you're trying to solve for, you think it's a beverage, but it actually turns out to be an app, you know? Um, 
you know, and, and you kind of learn that as you as you go through it. Um, so if you're kind of focused on something like we were, we were just like, look, this is really, we think this is really important to change the way pe- people's nutrition and their digestive health. So we're going to just keep going at this. Like it's going to, you know, when we get knocked down, we'll kind of get back up again because you know, we're sort of pursuing a, a, you know, a broader aim. Um, and I think investors pick up on that stuff as well, you know, um, and if you do clearly believe in what you're doing, you have a healthy skepticism and, and you know, and, and realism about the difficulty and the challenges ahead. And I think if you have, you know, some kind of outsized competitive advantage, so whatever that might be, and I think often it depends on the entrepreneurial team. In our case, you know, Ben is a very skilled formulator and I had done 10 years prior at a major multinational in marketing. So, you know, investors are going to think, well, you know, the product's probably going to taste pretty good and or it can taste it is. And that's kind yeah. of incredible why that is competitive advantage. And then, you know, this other guy is probably going to be able to convince people to, you know, um, wrap it in a way that convinces people to, to buy into it. And, and so you just need something, you know, whether it's finance or, you know, lean in. I, I see entrepreneurs getting stuck on trying to be good at everything and you really don't need to be. Um, you need to be like, you know, I'd call it like a C plus or D sometimes. Uh, yeah. A lot of things like basically just not literally going off the rails and then be a a star at, at just one thing. Like you might have a real skill for TikTok. And so sure. yeah. when investors looking at it and it's like, why this one and not the other one? Um, well, these guys have an ability to, um, you know, an understanding of TikTok that is going to allow them to kind of scale this thing in a way that others wouldn't be able to. So, um, so yeah, I, I think it is very hard that first check. And I think, you know, you can help yourself with a lot of introspection and, you know, being authentic with investors as well. And, you know, you will attract the best investors if, if you approach it in that way. That is some, some great advice. I think some, some advice that we've not gotten on here before. So thanks for that. I think that's, that's fantastic. Um, so you guys, you know, you go through the raise, you're raising money in the background. You're trying to get this off the ground. What were some of the like early distribution points that you guys were able to, to get early on? Um, well, first was just, you know, 40 stores in Northern California. We managed to okay. convince distributor to distribute us in, in Northern California. And so, you know, that, that was it. And, you know, it's hard that as well, because chicken and egg, you know, the distributors right. like, I don't know, I'm not sure I want to take a gamble on these guys. They don't got any stores yet. Um, and, um, so, you know, it's hard and, and then, you know, sales hire is kind of critical at that point to ensure that if you get 40 stores or 10 stores or five stores, like you better make sure that they work. Sure. Um, oh yeah. Because, you know, your, your success will be um, dictated by the velocity in the stores that you're in and everything gets extrapolated from there. So if you're selling, you know, I don't know, a hundred units a week in per store in 40 stores in Northern California, that's going to get people excited because they're going to extrapolate that number and think maybe they could sell hundred units in or even 50 units in like 5,000 stores. And that's yeah. interesting. Um, you know, if you're doing two units a week and you're saying, well, you know, it's because we don't have sampling and this and that, and there's, you know, a bunch of reasons why it's not working. Um, you know, it's, it's probably not going to fly because, um, you know, part of 
often what investors are looking for as well, what retailers are looking for is like, can you make it happen even under difficult circumstances? You just have to find a way. Um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of a bruising experience, you know, starts up in that way. There's, there's no excuses. Like you can have excuses, but it's, it's not very useful to you. Just the, the net outcome is your business, you know, dies. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's really good advice too, to not just like sit back and make excuses on, on early velocity. Was that something you guys had pretty good success with out the gate at these play at these locations? We did. Yeah. I, I think it's a case for a lot of like your product should work without you having to really sweat it, you know, okay. you, should, yeah. you should have to execute it properly in store, but um, you know, if it's got a real reason to exist um, then people should see that and be picking it up and come back and repeat. Um, you know, for us at the time, say there's a number of sort of competitors enter the market now, but there really was nothing like our product out there. Like literally nothing people would get their hands on. So you know, for probably about 12 months, we had the run of the market where, you know, people just kind of gravitating towards, um, you know, Olipop because it was serving a real need for them. They wanted to drink soda or had given up, um, you know, gone into sparkling water or whatever, but we're looking for something full flavored. And, um, you know, this, this allowed them the opportunity to do that. No. Yeah. I love that. And in what, you know, to, in today's world, like coming out, hopefully the other side of COVID, uh, for you guys, I'm sure it's a little more difficult because you sell obviously a, a beverage that's a heavier product. What has um, like D2C and e-commerce just in general, Amazon, what have, have those platforms been big pushes for you guys? Yeah, they've been transformational. Um, you know, it's interesting now with, you know, Imperfect Produce, GoPuff, Amazon, your own D2C platform, Target.com, Walmart.com, you know, um, I, I think you know, modern consumer goods businesses really have to think about omni-channel in a way that we haven't in the past. That's definitely changed in the last um, 18 months. Um, you know, we went from, you know, D2C is like 5% of our revenue to something like 30%. Oh, wow. And, and we grew by 1000% as a business during the pandemic. So, um, wow. Good for you guys. Congrats. Yeah, thanks. And so you can kind of get an idea of like how fast the growth in DTC would have been. Um, yeah, it's a lot of work. And we chose to build our own platform before going to Amazon, um, okay. which which I think is is a critical thing to do, um, both from a profit perspective and from, you know, you control the data and things, but it is yeah. materially more difficult to do that. And so you know, required a lot of effort and it just takes time. Like you can't build that stuff quickly. Um, you just have to keep, we're on an, another phase now of like, it's almost like levels of a video game, you know, yeah. you just sort of get to level five and then you're like, okay, what's next in the DTC game to get to level six and you, you know, up, upscale in, in certain areas. Are you, uh, are you guys, fo- are, like how is, is, is things, I guess, for lack of better words, transition from D to C to Amazon more so through the pandemic or has D to C been able to grow with it? I know that's something in my time at RX, like when I came in, Amazon was there. We were like not really focused on it. It was kind of growing organically. And our D2C was like our focus for e-com. And then like over my time there, it's like transition in e-commerce. Amazon specifically has just taken off as just, you know, one of the biggest customers we have. Yeah. Um, I'd say everything is growing, honestly. Um, you know, we're in a, a kind of hyper growth phase. We're less than three years old as a business. So, um, sure. you know, it's, it's just how you make 
how you accelerate everything really. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes total sense. Um, obviously there's, you've already mentioned lots of challenges, but has there been any of like the big key challenges for you guys in Olipop that was a surprise to you that like something maybe you just like didn't see coming that people listening would, would think would be a, like an aha moment for you guys? Um, I mean, after our first experience on Obi, it would be hard to throw anything at me that I would then be surprised <laughs> by, to be honest. Um, okay. So, and you know, that does help like having crashed through pretty much every hedge there is to crash through, um, you know, it helps you see around the corners a little bit more. Um, so I'd say what's kind of reassuring for entrepreneurs out there, I would say, look, if you're having an awesome time and growing your business, then good on you. And, and that's, that's amazing. And if you're not, and it's super painful and you feel like you're making a mistake at every turn, then that's okay as well. Because, um, you know, if you, are committed to the entre- entrepreneurial path if you're clear on a mission um then you'll be back and you'll be more experienced and and the mistakes you made will um you know turn into the learning and um you know you you're unlikely to make them again if you you know have the kind of humility and introspection to to lean into a true growth mindset so um yeah i don't know i mean there's you know all kinds of stuff there's challenges with co-packers there's, you know, your funding might drop through the last minute and like never count that until it's in the bank. Um, you know, I think it's just having a malleable mindset where, you know, you're kind of prepared for anything. Um, but also, you know, there's kind of, you get a degree of comfort. I think first time around, I was just stressed the whole time. I was like, Oh my God, this thing has gone wrong. This other thing has gone wrong. This other thing could go wrong. And it's all true, you know, it, it could happen and um, stuff is going wrong. But um, equally, once you you know build a team or if it's just you, if you build your own mindset where, you know, you can kind of adapt and learn quickly, um, you know, you, you learn to kind of ride out the bumps a little bit and know the risk going in that like you might just get caught out. You know, there's, a, there's an element of luck that um, in this as well you know, a hire that just kind of comes across your desk that you make and turns out to be amazing or, you know, just a chance meeting with a retailer that gets you in and, um, you know, and, and you might get boxed in and you might get, you know, but that that's where I think it's really important to appreciate and enjoy the entrepreneurial journey. Again, something I did not do the first time around. It, it was not fun. I wasn't kind of learning. I, I learned after I left that venture and, and did the self-reflection. This time around, I'm like, yeah, this is crazy. And that's why I like it because, you know, every week something gets thrown at me and then I have to sit with it and think through and adapt. And maybe it challenges me to grow as an individual. And so I have to do that. And that's that's my job for the week to, to kind of go through some personal growth. Um, and, you know, then if your business zeroes out, you're like, well, yeah, I mean, it happens <laughs> yeah. more frequently than not in startups. So your expectation should probably be that your business is going to zero out. And it's like, you know, a pleasant surprise if it doesn't. And But what you do have is this incredible life experience that, you know, you simply cannot get in a corporate environment or, you know, other jobs. And, you know, so once you commit to that, um, you know, you're in it. Um, you know, it's like having kids or something, you know, you can't really know until until you have a kid and one day it's sure. just that you're like now you're a now you're a parent you know and you're like oh okay <laughs> now I better, <laughs> better figure this out um you know you've read the manuals and stuff but 
you know, as I say, the thing in practice is very different. And then you just enter on a journey of growth. And I'm sure, you know, for anyone who is a parent, you'll kind of know that experience of like, it's challenging and awful and stressful and amazing and joyful and all of those things. And, you know, you probably wouldn't, wouldn't change it for anything. And, and entrepreneurialism, I think is, is a bit like that. Yeah, I love that. I, you know, I'm not a parent yet. And uh, my time at RX, I came in a little bit after probably the crazy of the crazy, the highest crazy of the crazy times, but definitely experienced my own few years of some wild, wild rides. And I would, I would have to agree from a, you know, I'm not a founder, but uh, some of that, like you look back and like, wow, we learned a lot in a short amount of time uh, just by going through some crazy, crazy times. So I love that part of, part of that too, actually, now I'm thinking about it for you, I mean, you, you had the big corporate experience, but what was it like, you know, you and Ben start this out and then you grow a team. What was it like trying to like scale and grow a team and have a big group of people working under you? I always think it's interesting asking founders, like you, you create something that's your baby and then you have to like bring people on and be willing to like give up some of the control to let other people help build your dream. What is that, you know, at a high level been like for you? Yeah. I mean, it's, um, you know, the entrepreneurial mindset is kind of like typically highly skeptical. It's controlling. Um, it wants to understand everything in excruciating detail, right? Like, you know, people who are entrepreneurs, founders tend to really want to understand the way things work, have a high degree of skepticism around things. And, you know, so that does make it challenging as you kind of bring on, you know, new people because um, yeah, it's uh, you got to, you got to trust them. And so, I think for us, how we've got around that is, um, you know, we have an obnoxious hiring process, basically. So okay. we're only getting in, if you get into this business, then we have a at least reasonable degree of trust in you, you know? So um, we don't hire just for, I mean, I feel bad for people going through our interview process. I feel bad for <laughs> you know, some people that haven't made it into our company because, you know, it's highly kind of imperfect process and we put people through excruciating amount of interviews and then we might not hire them um because we're not not sure and um you know but it's so as i say it's an imperfect thing but it, it has led to you know a strong culture and a team that we can can kind of believe in and um yeah that's definitely helped and then you know you do need help with your structures as well like for for me it, it's benefited me being part of a large organization in the past and seeing, you know, organizational structure at some scale, you know, if you're a, a founder that hasn't, then, you know, you definitely need help with that because it, it's hard and it's complicated. So, um, you know, as you get more success and resource, um, it's where you can start to put people around you, you know, advisors and things that can, you know, guide you on some of this stuff. And, you know, that's a big part of it, just kind of listening and absorbing information and then, you know, translating that through your own lens. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Love it. It seems like a fun adventure. I, I can only imagine, uh, you know, hi tough hiring practices though, sometimes create, in my opinion, the best cultures, the best cultures I've ever been a part of. You had to make it through, uh, some intense hiring. So I, I get that, um, for Olipop specifically, like you guys are trying to make, you know, obviously this better for you. Soda brand. What is, uh, if you want to share, you don't have, if, if you can't share anything, that's totally fine too. But from like an innovation standpoint, what can consumers maybe expect? Are there any other categories you guys want to crack into? Is it different flavors? What are you guys trying to, you know, over the next one to three years really attack next? Definitely new flavors. Um, yeah, I think the, 
innovation is really hard. And um, so if you are trying to uh, go across categories as a small business, like I remember trying to do it at Diageo with the, with the resource that we had, you know, and, and kind of push brands into different segments. It's, it's hard. I think often people overestimate the equity that they have in their brand. Um, you know, Nike has a bit of equity, um, you know, a handful of other brands do, but there's not that many, you know? So sure. even if you're like a 250 million revenue brand, which feels massive in our startup space, you probably don't have that much brand equity at that point. Um, so, you know, you think you can kind of stretch into other categories and people will follow you because they're following your brand. Um, probably what they're more tied to is product and the specific problem that you have solved for mm. um, in, that, in that category. And so, you know, you start layering on organizational complexity and supply chain and maybe your sales guys now need to go and call on two different buyers. Um, so you split their time and your field sales guys have to go and do different things. Um, and, um, you know, your marketing effort, you're trying to figure out your brand architecture within your brand. Like, how do we promote all of these things? And, you know, you see even for Coca-Cola, the amount of iterations they've been through with Coke Zero, Diet Coke and Coca-Cola to try and bring those three products under one franchise that they can market efficiently. Like that's hard. And those products are pretty, pretty similar. Yeah. Um, you know, there's certain categories I think like a brand like Banza has done this really well that are more commoditized where you can, you know, sort of go across a, a bunch of staples. Um, you know, but for us, you know, beverage soda is not a, not a commoditized product. It's something you carry around in your hand, uh, you know, it says something about you. So I think, you know, for us, we were looking for an opportunity that could be north of a billion dollars credibly. And, you know, I think within a $40 billion category with 97% household penetration really, you know, the innovation onus is on us to, you know, make the marketing talk to people in a way that sits on top of soda and keep refining the flavor profile and get the concept as close to soda as we can and bring the cogs down so the price point can can be at a point that people can more people can buy into it. So, you know, that's that's kind of really the focus for us. Love it. Love it. Great stuff in there. Um, for anyone listening who I guess has been in your shoes. So like someone who maybe works in corporate America or has given something a try, anyone who like has an itch to start something, what advice would you have for them just to get started? Yeah. I mean, I think I'm probably pretty poorly qualified to, you know, to give advice on it, but, um, cause it's such a personal decision as well. It really is. Um, you know, I, I talk to founders all the time. I try and take a lot of calls because I, I, you know, I just surprise myself sometimes I wake up and like, Oh yeah, I've been doing this for like 10 years now. So it still feels like yesterday that I, that I started it. But so you do obviously learn some stuff during, during that time. Um, and, you know, I hear people starting out and talking in a, you know, pretty naive way about things and, you know, and, and you think about kind of discouraging them from doing it, but that was me, you know? So yeah, right. Um, it's like, I'm not sure there's any other way to start really. Um, you know, so as I say, I, I would just think about your own, what I would say is this, like, think about, you know, cons- if you're sitting in a corporate chair, um, you know, startup can look very attractive, particularly if you're kind of a bit burned out in the corporate world. Um, and you're like, I want to go and do this dynamic thing and like be my own boss. And, 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 you know, a lot of that is true, but there's downsides to, to it as well. And so you just got to consider the whole thing holistically. 
and make sure you're okay with the downsides as well as the upsides. Um, you know, sometimes, I mean, there's some really good corporate jobs out there. My job at Diageo was great. I had zero complaints about it. And, you know, I, looking back, um, you know, I maybe could have solved some of my frustrations by um, advocating more for the path that I wanted and, and, mm. you know, sort of molding that thing around the life that I wanted a little bit more. Um, so, you know, there are things to consider and um, not all startups are made equal. Um, if you're going to found a business from zero, that's, that's probably the gnarliest thing to take on. <laughs> you're going to join like a sub $10 million revenue business. That's kind of pretty, you know, pretty nail bitey type stuff. Sure. You know, if you're north of 50 and series C financing, it's a different thing. So, um, you know, again, it's like there's lots of different entry points. You can go into it and you can go and I'm sure some of the people in our business will go on and, and do their own thing at some point in their career. But what they're getting now is some insight and learning into, you know, they're, they're learning from Ben and my mistakes, you know, first yeah, time yeah, around. Yeah, there so, you go. Um, so, yeah, there's, you know, but if you if you feel you need to do it, I would go and do it and know that, um, you know, if it doesn't work out, you get a valuable life experience and just be clear on your boundaries, like no one to stop, you know, and that's not just financial. It's also from a mental health perspective, you know, no, it can really encroach on your family or, you know, your personal time or your mental health or stop you from exercising and just know where those boundaries are and don't cross them and just take the consequences either way. You know, it's like, look, I need to, whatever it is, run every day. And so I'm going to do that no matter how much work I've got. And that's just like not a compromise I'm willing to make. And whatever happens, happens. And these are my working hours. And, you know, what it helps you do as well. I think startup at its best is about the intensity with which you work when you are working, not how many hours you work. And ah, love again, that. Intensity uh, over volume. Yeah, mistake I made first time around. I was just getting burned out. So my productivity was going like this. So I was having to work more and more hours to maintain the same level of productivity. This time around, I, I remember even when, um, you know, I was starting out and there'd be days I'd be feeling stressed. And I'd just take a bath. You know? Oh, there you go. Just lie in the bath calm and just down. Like, read the newspaper or something, you know, it's, and um, that would kind of, you go for a run and you just bring yourself back down to level you can think properly again and then work with intensity ah, like work one hour with intensity rather than four hours where you just sat at your computer freaking out staring at the screen um you know you you will take yourself under if, if you're doing that great advice that's phenomenal advice um after your time at olipop is over hopefully that's way down the road from now i'm sure what would you like to be remembered for um yeah i think ben and i really want to we we really want to make a dent in in the soda category we want to give people you know an option um that kind of moves them away from a high sugar low fiber diet into a high fiber low sugar diet um whether that's drinking our product or competitors or um you know just switching you know educating around the reasons to switch their diet um we also um want to uh show that there's a a very we're intent on doing this in a very specific way with humanity and um you know and creating an ecumenistic organization that um you know people can show up for work as their 
true selves and, and be flawed and be imperfect and I'd be okay. And we work through these things and, um, you know, and we think with authenticity about what product we're putting out in the world and the decisions that we make and how we support each other as a group and, and set an example so that, you know, hopefully one day if we are super successful and, you know, whatever held up in some way, when people peel back the hood, what they see is something that we would all want to be replicated in in other businesses. And, and it's hard, you know, because there are a lot of businesses that take shortcuts and it, it can lead to success that way. But, um, you know, we're kind of committed to a different path and it's 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 been fun to kind of push push down it. Love that and can't wait to see what you guys do next. Um, David, thank you so much for the time today. Last thing, how can people follow you and how, just as important, how can people try Olipop and, and follow the brand? Um, so, we're at drinkolipop.com. Uh, you can find us there. Um, we have a store located there as well. If you want to find a store near to you, um, yeah, we are most active on Instagram. Um, you can also, if you're listening and, and want to f- follow our kind of business journey, um, we post a lot on LinkedIn as a, as a company, as individuals, follow, you know, various people on our team um, on LinkedIn, and we try and put useful information out for the community there as well. Love it. Love it. Thank you. I will add all those links to the show notes so everyone can find it. And uh, David, again, thank you so much for the time. It was great to get to meet you and, and learn more about Olipop. Awesome. Thanks so much, Frank. Appreciate it. Have a good one.